Hello and welcome to Ely Saying Something. This time it's the turn of Edmund Fordham. He's the independent candidate for the 2019 general election here in South East Cambridgeshire. Let's hear what he's got to say. Dr Edmund Fordham, welcome to Ely Saying Something. Welcome, thank you. No problem at all. Easy question to start. How did you become interested in politics? So I think this one dates back to my childhood, uh, which was uh, spent in uh, East Africa. And I witnessed in the early 1960s firsthand the excitement in both Uganda and Kenya, uh, which were preparing for independence and holding their first elections ever on a universal franchise. And I was quite struck as a child by the huge excitement among people being given for the first time a real voice and a real choice, all citizens equally, and they definitely understood the equality that they had in the polling booth. Lots of rivalry, of course, but there was palpable optimism that they were being given real ownership of their own destiny. And I think the importance of that has stayed with me for life. Okay. What are you most passionate about? The democratic principle being upheld. I think it's already in grave peril. Our largest ever democratic decision was the one that we took as a nation in 2016 to leave the European Union. And it has still, three and a half years later, not been implemented, though we were clearly promised that it would be. I looked up recently the uh, leaflet that was sent out uh, to all households at the time, and the words couldn't be clearer. This is your decision the government will implement what you decide. Uh, so it's that simple. Uh, it hasn't been implemented, we do have to do it. The democratic principle is the foundation of our whole civil society. We are peaceful and civilised because of it. The vote and the secret ballot are the peaceful means to agree the governance of our country. And if people lose confidence in that, then our whole social order is in danger. Okay. Now, for balance, when I speak to each of the candidates, I'm asking all the same questions. Just to explain to people listening, some of these questions won't apply because you're standing outside the party system. Okay, But prior to the stand-down decision, you were a member of the Brexit Party. Um, Correct. Are you still a member of the Brexit Party? I believe I'm still a registered supporter of the Brexit Party, but of course uh, they have effectively uh, abandoned me, so I really am an independent in this election, and I think that does bring real freedoms and advantages because I can genuinely say that I can represent constituents better because I've got no more party constraints on my position at all. And do you feel you've got no baggage then? I don't think I have any baggage. Um, before April of this year, I wasn't a member of any political party and I'd taken no interest in politics since I quit the Labour Party in the mid-90s. Um, the, the only position I clearly do have is my Brexit position, um, where I basically stand shoulder to shoulder with the Brexit party in arguing for a clean break from the European Union as soon as possible. Okay, so then, in, in fairness to you then, um, I think it's important to say you've had a political journey then, so you were once in the Labour Party. Many years ago, yes. Excellent. So you've um, changed your mind? I think a lot of the things that drew me into the Labour Party in the early days, I think um, I would still hold to. Um, take the Labour Party's old Clause 4, for example, securing for the workers by hand and by brain the full fruits of their industry. I actually 
still believe in that, although I tend to believe um, that things like a high wage and low tax economy are better vehicles for doing that than the kind of socialism that's being espoused by um, Corbyn and McDonnell. Okay, we'll come back to public ownership uh, uh, later then, but that, that's interesting. Okay, why? Um, actually, I'm just going to flip the question. The question I ask is most people aren't in a political party, why are you? Okay, so I'm going to ask it differently. Most people I speak to at the moment are in a political party, you are not, and I guess you've now made the decision not to be in a political party. Correct. Um, and I guess you've said to me the reasons why, and you think actually you'd be a better representative because you're not in a party then? I think so, yes. That's great, okay. Why do you want to be an MP? I think there are two main reasons here. The first one is that everyone should have someone to vote for and not be reduced to spoiling their ballot paper because they feel there isn't a real choice available. Um, that's a real corruption of the democratic process if that kind of thing happens. Um, this really is the Brexit election, and I feel I am the sole candidate representing unambiguous endorsement of our national decision in the referendum. Uh, the other parties either reject the decision outright, or they want a second referendum with the objective of overturning the first, or they offer the grave risk of a fake Brexit, as people say, in name only. I've already had very kind messages from people thanking me for standing because of what otherwise they should have had to spoil their ballot paper. So the second reason that I would actually like to be an MP is that it's very rare indeed to see professional scientists and engineers going into Parliament. And we are an increasingly technological and very developed society and I am repeatedly aghast at the sheer ignorance of science or technology matters displayed by ministers. Yet these are people taking the decisions on science or technology matters and they're hopelessly ill-equipped to do it. So I do think I have experience to contribute in those areas. Okay, um, that's why you want to be an MP. Specifically, why do you want to be our MP here in South East Camps? That's very easy. I think if you're offering yourself uh, to the electorate as an independent, it's fundamental to be rooted in the community. Uh, this constituency is where I live. I've lived within this constituency since 2013. I've worked in Cambridge since 1980, except for about six years in the United States. My wife's a teacher in the local village colleges. Our children are educated locally. We care about where we live. OK. Um, lots of people during an election campaign like to stretch credulity a bit. I'm going to do it now. OK, let's look at the election, December the 12th. And let's go right back to the European elections in 2009. So slightly more than 10 years. Okay, This will be the ninth national level poll in England during that time. You're out knocking doors at the moment. Have some people got polling fatigue? I think people have got massively bored with Brexit. They think it should have been sorted out long ago. You hear that over and over again on the doorstep. And it doesn't mean that they don't understand or care about the issues. It's just that they are fed up to the back teeth and beyond with professional politicians. The point you make about the number of polls, uh, I thought about that and I realised that if David Cameron had stuck it out and actually delivered on his promises, then his government could still actually be in office right now. We won't do another general election until next year. And we may not have had another Euro election as well. We could have saved um, a lot of people a lot of time. OK. This constituency was created in 1983. Since then, no one has come close to unseating the incumbent member. Is it really any different this time? I cannot possibly tell. The whole point of the electoral process is that it is the people's choice to make. 
And I'm not going to second guess that. I've already said how important it is to have a real choice, which was my main personal reason for standing. On the last day for nominations, Lucy Fraser spent nearly three hours with me trying to extract a promise not to stand. I was not going to yield to that kind of pressure. One lady shouted at me in Ely, a pox on all your houses, and I found that a pretty common opinion on the doorstep. I sadly didn't get the chance to say that I quite agreed with her, and that was exactly <laughs> why I was standing as an independent. So in answering your point about is it really different, the one thing I do hope we will see is that even if the incumbent is returned, the opposition candidates will ensure that it is on a minority vote with a slender margin. And that will at least undermine the concept of the safe seat, the uh, breathtaking attitude of entitlement by some political parties, and it would underline how broken our political system has become. Okay. Let's go back to that woman shouting at you in the street. And I'm not, I'm not expressing any support for her, but uh, what I'm just trying to say is I, I get it myself out there in, in and around the area. I go to lots of events that some people would deem political. Um, but there's, there's, there's missing demographics there. How would you look to broaden the range of people who take an active interest in politics? I've long been convinced that we have to clean out the class of professional career politicians, and frankly, in both houses of parliament. They're packed with people who have never done a proper job, uh, and in the Westminster Echo Chamber, as it's called, they're entirely cut off from the concerns of real people who may be struggling to get work, they're striving to bring up their families, they're worrying about money and putting food on the table and so forth. One of the most impressive things about my short experience with the Brexit party was meeting a diverse range of people who'd done amazing things. They had a real wealth of experience in areas that were nothing to do with politics at all. And they were united in their scorn for career politicians of frankly all colours. And they were united in supporting ordinary people and the need to rebuild trust in uh, politics. Technical issues, I think uh, I have come round to the view that we do need electoral reform to make every vote count. Um, otherwise, I think this is just going to get worse and worse. Ultimately, though, it all depends on us. If you're sick of career politicians, don't just stop listening to them. You've got to stop voting for them. And that's a huge point, a huge point. Um, you've mentioned electoral reform. That's a nice broad heading. Do you mean some form of proportional representation? I use the phrase electoral reform advisedly because I actually don't like uh, the kind of proportional representation that happened in the European Parliament. I've had direct experience of it being a candidate there. Anne Widdicombe gave a very amusing uh, speech uh, not so long ago where she said it was the first time in her political career that she was told that she had already won before the election had been held. That's because she was first on the party's list. Yeah. I was last on the party's list, and of course that meant that I stood no realistic chance of election whatsoever. It Sorry, puts... yeah, let's just explain that for people who aren't as geeky as me. Um, when you come to the Euro election, um, you vote for the candidates, uh, you vote for a party, don't you, effectively? Correct. In our region we have seven Correct. people we elect. And to get to the, there's a, what, a, what do you call, is it a national list or a preferential list? How's it described? It, it's, it's similar language to that. And what you're saying is if you gravitate yourself towards the top of that list, you get that party's vote regardless of who you are and what you've done. Yeah. Pretty much so. That's not an attractive system the way I've described it, is it? It isn't an attractive system. It puts far too much power into the hands of political parties in selecting the candidates. I think people should be able to vote for the individual 
uh, quite as much as they're voting for a party position. Okay, so I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you're saying you're open-minded about PR, just not that type of PR. I think I am saying that, yes. Great, okay. So, obviously, you're an independent, you're standing yourself alone, forgive me, um, you're not going to form the next government, but what would you want to see happen in the first 100 days of the next government? What I do want to see is a clean break from the European Union in January. Uh, the primary legislation for that is already in place, and all we have to do is wait. Um, there needs to be the repeal of the so-called Ben Act and the other bits of constitutional mischief, uh, but that really shouldn't take long. Uh, the other thing that should follow is the real pursuit of a genuinely free trade agreement with the European Union with no political interference, just like Nigel Farage proposed to Boris Johnson before being rather rudely rebuffed. But to ensure that, we do have to see enough people like me being elected to Parliament because I don't believe Johnson will do it on his own. Let's focus on you then, Edmund. So you are elected. Let's say everyone decides they've heard this podcast. They think, actually, I'm sick of professional career politicians. Let's put two fingers up to the lot of them and you romp home here in South East Kent. What does your first 100 days look like? So as an independent... I would be in opposition, I think, by definition. Yeah. One of the things that I've committed to in some answers I've supplied to the Cambridge Independent uh, newspaper... Other newspapers to... are available. <laughs> they asked me the question. Uh, but one of the things I've committed to is to institute regular policy forums across the constituency where anyone can put forward a case for action on any issue they care about. The Brexit Party was actually doing this in September, and I was involved with that, and some amazingly well-thought-out proposals came forward. So I think that is potentially a very good model for an independent MP to respond directly to constituents and take their concerns directly to Parliament. Um, it's well known there's not a lot of opportunity for private members' bills, but you, know, you can cross fingers and hope. Um, but at the very least, an independent MP can uh, act and influence things by asking questions, lobbying ministers and generally banging heads together. Um, and I think I quite enjoy doing that. Okay. I'm excited to hear you talk about regular policy forums. Uh, earlier in this series, we spoke to Ely's Extinction Rebellion cell, and uh, one of their central tenets is citizens' assemblies. So it sounds like you could be collaborating with them shortly. <laughs> um, right, sorry. Uh, NHS. Um, what's your vision for the NHS? I mean, does the NHS figure in your campaigning at all? It doesn't figure directly in my campaigning. I haven't taken any firm positions on it. Um, one of the uh, questions that you asked um, of me uh, in advance was uh, things like social care, which is at least abutting and adjacent to the uh, issue of the NHS because it does, after all, involve people who are ill. They have medical conditions. Um, so I'd like to talk a bit about social care because I have direct experience of it through my late father, who had a major stroke in 2013, and that left him a total invalid for the last three and a half years of his life, and he was unable to speak or move unaided. He was cared for devotedly at home by my stepmother, herself approaching 90 years of age, who had to manage a continuous stream of carers visiting multiple times per day, and of course, pay for them. I was concerned about the effect on my stepmother's health, as well as the cost, I made strenuous efforts to obtain help from the so-called secret fund of the NHS called Continuing Healthcare, under which care is managed by the NHS. The CHC applications, however, see the NHS as judge and jury in their own court, uh, making 
arbitrary decisions which should not in theory be based on budget positions, but I strongly suspect in practice they are. So to have a loved one in such a state is distressing enough, but having to battle the NHS bureaucracy to fight for help which didn't actually come is terrible. And what I learned is effectively the NHS washes its hands of you if you have a chronic disabling health condition, which isn't actually terminal illness. So if we're going to redefine such conditions as social care, we do actually have to acknowledge the NHS does not actually offer free health care to all. There are already many conditions which are excluded. I've seen petty examples of that even myself. I've got a lipoma on my arm, mildly disabling, which my GP could easily remove in his own surgery in 20 minutes, but the NHS bureaucracy refuses to allow him to do it. And a private plastic surgeon is apparently my only recourse. So I do think that we need to have a properly cross-party and a publicly involved national conversation about the NHS, what it can do, what it can't, why our cancer survival rates are so bad, and how the NHS bureaucracy so often interferes with the practice of medicine and whether there are better models. But I do think it's a matter for genuinely participated democracy for something that's so close to so many people's hearts and it's vital to have the maximum degree of consensus. That's really interesting, Edward, because you said that it's not directly part of your campaigning. I wonder if you've made a misstep, because it's clearly something you feel passionately about and you're coming at it from an informed perspective. It may be something you focus on later in your campaign. Well, I could have said a lot more about um, cancer survival rates and cancer treatments because I am myself a cancer survivor, so I've been a major consumer of uh, medical care at uh, critical periods in my life. Um, but that would, I think, take us too far afield. Okay. Um, climate change. What practical measures would you ta- introduce to tackle climate change? Now, I think you've got a background in renewable energies, is that right? That is correct, yes. I got very interested in renewable energy uh, in the uh, early part of my uh, career when I was a young graduate. I ended up writing my PhD thesis on uh, wind energy in the genuinely pioneering days of that technology. Just date yourself there, Edmund. When would that have been? That was between... It was in the early 1980s. Well, early, late 70s, early 80s. Basically. OK, so you're coming relatively early to the curve then, yeah? Okay. Yes. Yeah. OK. So, what practical measures would you like to see introduced that could help tackle climate change? Well, there are quite a few hidden assumptions uh, behind... Uh, this. Yeah. The phrase climate change is one of those slightly slippery labels which don't always mean what the words suggest if you look them up in a dictionary. Now, the entire science of geology and quite a bit of human history shows us that the climate has always changed. I'm personally quite sure it always will. And yes, it's going on right now. Very often, though, climate change is used to mean what we used to call global warming, specifically the idea that the world as a whole is being warmed up by excessive carbon dioxide from the combustion of fossil fuels. And the entire world economy is still founded upon those fossil fuels. But for most of the Earth's history, burning fossil fuels can't have had anything to do with climate change because either there weren't any humans or we weren't using any fossil fuels. So... Climate changing by entirely natural mechanisms we're most unlikely to be able to do anything about. As for the global warming concern, now there are lots of people out there who are clearly very worried about that, but one of the things that they should do is to take a very hard look at the consequences for the energy technologies being promoted on the back of those concerns. If you really want to attempt things like net zero by 2050, 
About the only thing I can think of off the top of my head is a massive expansion of our nuclear power fleet, and even that's a stretch. What you're likely to get are things like the Seneca Solar Farm, which I do want to bring up because I'm sure that that's going to be a big issue in our constituency as more people wake up to what it means. We're looking at three and a half thousand acres of green land being plated over with black solar panels, industrialising enough farmland to build a whole new town upon if you wanted to. The environmental destruction of that I am appalled by. You'll be cutting down trees and hedgerows, you'll be eliminating habitats for wildlife, you'll be heating up the local microclimate, it encroaches on established nature reserves and so on. And yet the energy output from such a huge investment of land is pretty pathetic. Having looked into it just a little bit, one driver for the landowners involved seemed to be poor prices for agricultural products compared to the money being offered for long-term leases by Seneca. So I think we need to look very closely at a, what is probably a subsidy-driven financial structure behind Seneca. And alongside that, we have to look at the economics of agriculture after Brexit, because with that, of course, comes our exit from the common agricultural policy. But irrespective of the financing behind it, I honestly cannot see how environmental destruction in pursuit of piffling amounts of energy is really going to help us. It's not the way to go, and I suspect I'm going to be the only candidate in these elections to oppose it. Right. Inequality in our society, how would you address it? Inequality really needs a thriving economy to be addressed. Uh, you need a thriving economy, you've got to have opportunities for all. I want to see a high wage, low tax economy with strong regional development incentives uh, provided by central government. That was one of the early policies announced by the Brexit party and I still think it is a good one. Okay. Do you believe in social mobility? Absolutely. I think we need to become a much more meritocratic society with opportunities in all walks of life, limited only by people's abilities and inclinations. And it's better for everyone if more and more people are fulfilled in their talents and interests, whatever they may be. My grandfather was a coal miner, first in the Welsh Valleys and during World War II and afterwards in the Kent coal fields. But my mother had her abilities spotted and nurtured at her grammar school in Canterbury, became her headmistress's star pupil, went to university on a miners' welfare scholarship in the late 40s, and ended up working as a social work instructor in rural Kenya when I was a child in the 1960s. So I believe in social mobility, all right, and the education system is absolutely the key to it. Fantastic. Uh, I think we all believe in education. Um, I'm going to bring you back to something you mentioned earlier. Um, utilities, should they be returned to public ownership? Well, I'm one of those who think that they should not have been privatised in the first place. I could never see how genuine market competition could work in what are natural monopolies. I'm not sure, however, that we could afford the costs of renationalisation. I think that is an ideological uh, motivation. The one exception I would make is with the railways, where I do think that uh, public ownership uh, could do things uh, like um, improving the uh, network of branch lines, which, oddly enough, the Tories have started to talk about, um, and improving the interconnection, say, between the uh, east ports, east coast ports and the Midlands. Okay. So you're not opposed to the principle of public ownership, it's the sheer practicality of 
bringing that about. Though. Correct. Yeah. And the costs of it. Yeah. Okay. Obviously, we've talked about Europe. I foresee a time, because I believe the best in people, when our relationship with Europe will be resolved. Okay. But what about ourselves as a nation? The Brexit era has uh, brought to light some real divisions within our communities amongst families. We're in a constituency that broadly voted in line with the national poll result. You know, it's a slight lead majority. How do we act to heal those divisions within our own community? I think this is a really important question. There's no doubt that Brexit has been a very corrosive issue. But I think the answer depends upon the nature of the resolution and the Brexit play out that we actually get. The only way that the democratic decision is unambiguously fulfilled is to leave on clean break terms, and I hope as soon as we can, because then the issue is truly ended. And the one thing that we should really start to do is to celebrate the people like the lovely lady I met on the doorstep in Fordham recently, whom I have quoted in my election address, who told me this. I was a really strong Remainer, she said, but we voted to leave, so that is what we must do. And she's one of the wonderful unsung heroes of Brexit, the people like her who were on the Remain side of the argument, but recognise the fundamental importance of the democratic principle. And she very honourably puts that above her own personal preference. And I've met many friends who take a similar view, and I think they're probably more common than we may think, and we should be celebrating them wholeheartedly. Now, right now, I think we've got a complete collapse of trust in the political system, and we can't really begin this process of reconciliation or uh, healing the divisions that you talk about until it's properly resolved. The great danger of the Boris Johnson policy is that we face years more festering divisions because the issue isn't ended. And one possible outcome is that we never leave at all or end up rejoining the EU on worse terms than we have now. The prospect of a second referendum similarly drags out the bitterness. And the policy of outright revocation would be a truly spectacular two-fingered salute from the establishment class towards a clear majority of our own fellow citizens. People then would have learned that voting changes nothing, and I think that is very dangerous. You might see at first an acceptance of defeat and things like a further collapse of participation in politics or voting, but you could also start to see what's already happening in France with the Gilets jaunes movement, where people take to the streets because they have learned that their political class simply will not listen. In the 1960s, Ugandans and Kenyans being given the vote for the first time were hugely inspired because they felt they had at last a share in and ownership of the decisions affecting their own destiny. Many of the people who voted in the referendum in 2016 were also voting for the first time because they felt that they too at last had a real say. We can't afford to let them down. And I think that's a good moment to end. Edmund Fordham, we've been Ely saying something. Thanks for your time. So that was Edmund Fordham. He's the independent candidate for the South East Cambridgeshire constituency for December the 12th, 2019. We heard that he believes in the democratic principles being upheld and he wants a clean break from the EU. He believes voters are massively bored with Brexit and he has no time for professional career politicians. But he was open-minded to electoral reform. In the interest of balance, all candidates have been asked to take part. All candidates have been asked the same questions. If you're Ely saying something, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. <laughs>